Hello, friends. If you caught last episode, you know I had a, a challenging week leading up to the premiere of the Netflix documentary about One Taste, the cult I was in, in which I am featured. And it was a very also interesting week with lots of gamesmanship, with talking to different parties, with different allegiances and incentives and all this covert communication, people who are somewhat secretly connected to One Taste, people who are somewhat connected to Netflix and all the different forces. But ultimately, everything that I was concerned about, none of it happened. The result was a bit anticlimactic. The documentary itself, I had some mixed feelings about. But through both the uncomfortable moments and the anticlimactic results, I often did think, why did I put myself through this, right? Because I, you know, I, I chose to put my face out there. I chose to be part of this documentary with all the controversy and everything. Like, why did I bother doing any of this? The simplest answer is that I felt the need to get this story out. Various reasons for that, but I have been working on this book about my cult experience for a large part of the last decade. And honestly, you know, there was a time when I was doing it for maybe the more material reasons that one would write a book for recognition, for income, for anything that would boost one's ego or, or all, all those kinds of desires. I do not deny that that has been a motivating factor. But honestly, I mean, that, that was more true, like maybe seven years ago when I was a little bit more naive about many things. Back then, I thought I could just get a book out in a year after leaving, it would be published, and that would be like the end of that. I would never think about it again. Seven years later, seven years of torture through this project, you know, making sense of it and obviously writing it. Honestly, if I could have dropped it years ago or perhaps never started, I would have. If you're on my email list, I shared a little bit about this there, but Truth is, in the last 10 years, there is nothing other than sleep that I've spent more time on this. And when I think about, when I try to calculate the thousands of hours spent, e even just writing, not even including the living of the story, which of course was a 24-7 thing for two years, you know, it's just like, there's so many other things that I could have done with that time that would have contributed to my life with less controversy and less discomfort and all the, the normal things that people do with themselves. But also the truth is that I didn't really have a choice. In many ways, I have felt seized, kind of unwillingly seized by this story, seized by some forces that I cannot see, something that we can call the muse. So this episode is about the muse, which of course is a metaphorical personification of involuntary creative forces. I had to start this episode in a kind of more dismal way because if you can relate to being seized by the muse, there is certainly a torture, or at least in my, I'll speak for myself, there is a torture in this. And for me, at least, this has been a spiritual pursuit, at least in the case that it is kind of separate from my pragmatic concrete life, even though I did start it with certain material ambitions. So certainly this episode ought to relate to anyone involved in some sort of artistic project, but it actually goes further than that. This involuntary and often unconscious creative force 
we could put in the category of, quote, the feminine or Jung's shadow, this part of us that gives us so much, but we don't seem to have control of it. I put it in the same category as the feminine because it is responsible for most organic and feeling-based things in our life. Actually, just the other day, I was uh, speaking to a young man who, uh, he's not a musician by trade, although he plays music on the side. He reached out to me for help connecting with women. And uh, I was basically trying to help him get out of his head and into his body. And it seemed that the only times where he really gets into his heart, if you will, really gets into feeling is in a sense in service to the muse, playing music. And I've been trying to help him to get into that state or remain in that heart-centered, feeling, not thinking space when he speaks to women, where unfortunately he has the pattern of going up into his head and becoming, well, not in flow, if you will. But the thing is, with him and with any creative pursuit and anything, when it comes to this part of ourselves, the muse, the feminine, the whatever, it doesn't follow a linear progression. You can't just follow steps to become creative or, or follow a checklist to get into your heart. It's often this elusive thing, this part of our creative unconscious. So in this episode, I'm going to share my ups and downs in my attempt to have a good relationship with the muse. I think I've done plenty of things wrong, and when I have, she has tortured me. And when I've done things right, she's been very kind, or at least I, I think that to be the case. In this sense, the muse does really feel like a woman. And in this case, my ego is kind of like an adolescent male who doesn't understand her at all, but is somehow wrapped up in her. So I'm going to share my ups and downs. I'm going to share the story of me trying to do service to this story that has seized me. Unlike in other episodes where I'll lay out a principle and then back it up with examples or whatever it is, I'm actually going to try something a little bit different, something maybe a little bit more muse-friendly. I'm going to share uh, three quotes from poets much more connected than I am to hopefully drive these principles home, three things that I believe to be true in, in figuring out this new kind of woman. Quick and relevant announcement to this. A couple days ago on Friday, I published the prologue of my book. I'm serializing my book, my memoir of the my two years in the cult of orgasm. Um, you can check that out at rwando.substack.com. If you've been on my email list, I gifted you a 30-day free paid subscription. You've probably already received that. If you're not on my email list or you listening to this far in the future, there's still a way to, to, to subscribe and follow it along. And uh, the first couple chapters will be free. I'm releasing a two to five page chapter every week. So if you want to check that out, if you want to support, if you just want to see my real story, which has not been covered by any media outlets, even though I've hoped it would be. Maybe if they did, I wouldn't have to write the book anymore, but they didn't and I have to. You can go to ruando.substack.com to read all of it. And if you do subscribe for a year, I will also buy you a physical copy of the book once it's out in print. I do still plan on going through traditional publishing, just not immediately. This is episode 163, Servant to the Muse on Involuntary Creation. Our first quote comes from Beat Hero, Allen Ginsberg, and it reads, 
When the muse comes to your bedside, don't tell her you'll fuck her later. Of course, this means when inspiration strikes, you follow it. And I also love this imagery, well, for a few reasons, but there is, I mean, I think it, it does exemplify what is true about these creative forces that in a sense, she chooses you. Again, it's not like something you can manufacture. This is a, if the muse is a woman, it is not someone that can be subdued. And this essentially was my experience with this book. So even before I made contact with One Taste, back in 2012, I had spent all of that year basically lost. I had been fired from my last corporate job at a marketing firm. I was committed to living the four-hour work week and putting all of the self-help principles that I had been reading about to test, but it didn't really work. Tried a million things to find purpose and make a living. Nothing really worked out. I was just just getting by as a freelance writer. And one uh, one weekend, it might have been Labor Day weekend, it was towards the end of the summer, I was hanging out with some college buddies at one of our friend's family lake house. Typical guys hanging out, drinking beer, hanging out on the lake, throwing around the football. And Saturday morning, we went out for brunch, all a little hungover. And my friend very offhand mentioned that he knew someone who worked in publishing who told him that because Fifty Shades of Grey had just come out that summer and was a huge blockbuster, obviously, he heard the tip that anyone who could write half-decent erotica would get a book deal. He knew that I liked to write and he was like, oh, why don't, you, why don't you try that? That's something you can try. I don't know why this idea seized me more than many of the other things, but for some reason it did. And as soon as we got home from brunch back to the lake house, I locked myself in a room and I just started writing. I just, I was seized by this story. It was loosely based on a, a sexual experience I had in college and I just couldn't help but write it. It was like, and actually I never re read erotica before, so I didn't know what it was supposed to have. I didn't know how to make writing sexy or, or I still actually haven't read erotica, but I was writing about this sexual experience, but what seized me wasn't the, the sexual play-by-play, -play, which was in the background. It was that I found myself going very deep into my own personal philosophy and writing my own contemplations and admitting my anxieties during this sexual experience which was kind of happening in the background. And I sat in that room for over eight hours straight. You can imagine like this, this comic book montage where you know, every hour or so, one of my friends would pop in and be like, hey, do you want to throw on the footballs? Like, hey, do you want a beer? Hey, do you want a burger? Hey, do you want to come out on the lake? And every time I said, no, I got to finish this. No, I got to finish this. Eventually, at like 10 p.m. that night, my friends were all hammered. Uh, and I, re I read them what I had been writing all day. It was basically what could have been maybe the first chapter of a novel. Then being drunk, of course, laughed a lot. It was a big hoot. It was a lot of fun. And I did get the feedback that I think is quite accurate in retrospect that yeah, this was fun because we know you and what a kooky thing you're writing a sex story. But yeah, I don't know if it would really, really fly as a book or with a real audience. And looking back, I would certainly agree. It's not a piece of writing I'm proud of. But the feeling I got while writing it is it felt like being in love. It felt like an MDMA experience or being on Adderall all wrapped in one, it really felt like I had been taken and embraced and put into this 
altered state of consciousness. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but this is how it felt. It's like I could not do anything but sit in that chair and do service to this story that wanted to come out of me. So after that weekend, I was like, okay, this is my thing now. I'm going to finish this book. It's going to be awesome. And I spent the next months taking every spare hour I had trying to work on this book and, you know, writing the next chapter and the next chapter. But honestly, it all sucked. And arguably, even the first chapter sucked. But what was extra frustrating is that I had gotten this glimpse, you know, I, I had been kissed by this intoxicating being in writing that first piece. And I couldn't get it back. I was like, I was chasing this high. And perhaps one way to look at it is my heart was captured and then my head was trying to figure out how to have that happen again. But that's just not how it works, right? It's just like with a woman, like maybe you do something organically attractive and then you try to recreate it. You try to robotically follow the same formula and it's just not attractive anymore, right? You just, you can't manufacture love. You can't manufacture lust like that. You can't manufacture the good graces of the muse. But she had captured my heart. And so I decided I was going to do whatever I could do to, to make this work. And after some pondering, my mind said to me that, oh, well, the reason why that I can't write, the reason why I can't write an erotica novel is that I don't actually know that much about sex. I need to learn more about sex. I'm going to finish this book. So I decided I was going to get some sex education. And then literally that week, enter One Taste. I've been following One Taste for a while. I mean, I've talked about my actual One Taste story in other longer podcast episodes. I won't repeat all the details, but I've been following them for a long time. I, I mean, I had my own sexual hangups. I had my own emotional problems. So they were independently interesting to me. But all of a sudden, they just popped up in New York after, you know, they were based in San Francisco. They popped up in New York. They had an event a few blocks from my house. It almost seemed like the muse or the gods or the universe had given me the thing that I realized I needed. So, of course, I eventually said yes to that call. And from day one, I was taking notes on everything because I had decided I was going to write an epic erotica book based on my experiences, based on this amazing education and female orgasm that I was getting along with all these spiritual principles that were unexpected, this was going to be it. And that was actually when I started journaling on a regular basis, which is probably the only habit I've kept up with every single day for the last, I guess it's 10 years now. Initially, because I just wanted to take notes for this future book. I mean, one thing I realized from that, the first, my first attempt at erotica novel was that I could go on and on about when it came to contemplation. Maybe this is true for all young writers. I don't know. But I sucked when it came to dialogue. Whenever I, ever I tried to write dialogue of characters, be it fictional or even real people, they would always end up sounding like me, <laughs> which is, yeah, beginner writer stuff. So I spent a lot of focus. I put a lot of attention on whenever I heard someone say something interesting, I would write it down word for word because I wanted to get their voice right. Now, throughout my two years in One Taste, the story itself or the points went through different phases. It started off as going to be a philosophical erotica novel, and then it became something, the, the cult dynamics became more interesting, and I was like, maybe it's more like a, a cult thing, and at different times, I was like, no, no, it has to be about the sex education, because they, they really did have cutting-edge 
information, when it came to a lot of things, when it came to sexuality, when it came to relationships, when it came to how people can change their minds and change their personalities for good and for bad. And actually, most a, a huge part of my education as a coach and many of the things, especially about relationships and polarity and sexuality that I share here on this podcast, was largely informed by them. They were my graduate school education. But fast forward two years in one taste, it became undeniable that there were some dark things that I I wasn't sure if I was going to write it or not because I still, I mean, I really intended on writing a very... Or, or you know, showing the typical hero's journey arc where here I am, this weird, you know, or I should say unhappy guy. I found the, I find this strange world. I leave with all of this growth. I was thinking it would be like eat, pray, love for men or maybe something like Neil Strauss's The Game, but a lot more heart-centered. But at a certain point, it started to feel a little bit more like one of my other favorite nonfiction narratives, which is a book called Gang Leader for a Day which uh, is a book about this uh, economics student, I believe in the 80s, who wants to learn about the economics of crack dealing. So he essentially joins uh, a crack dealing gang in Chicago. He, he gets brought in. The, the gang leader takes a shine to him. And at first, it seems like really amazing. But then, of course, of course, there's plenty of dark things that occur in a, in a crack dealing gang. And the last chapters of that book are him, the author, internally wrestling with the fact that if he's going to write a true story, he's going to have to in some way betray the people who had been so kind to him because the gang loved him. They, they treated him so well. But if he was going to really tell the story, he's going to have to share some things that they would not love. And, and actually, throughout my time at One Taste, when confronted with some of the dark things when it came to money or sex or manipulation, I felt this kind of guilt too. It was actually in one taste that I first learned about the the concept of archetypes. There's uh, we did I mean we did many different exercises of personal growth, but one was something called the committee exercise, which is basically if you're familiar with family constellations, it's a similar idea where you assign different people to represent archetypes within your psyche, characters that are within you, and then you lead them through a psychodrama, and it's supposed to help you come up with realizations. It's actually pretty cool if you've ever seen a family constellation done well. It's very interesting. For me, whenever we did this kind of thing, the committee exercise, I always had to have a character that I would label as Anakin Skywalker because I often felt like this. I felt like uh, here I was, this young, new person being taught the ways of the Force and you know, uh, celebrated for having certain, uh, for forgetting it really well. Uh, for having the, the fourth strong in me, but there was this kind of impending feeling that on, at some point I was going to turn out, turn on the other Jedi. At some point I was going to take this power and go to the dark side, at least from the one taste perspective. Them, of course, being light and the outside worlds and anyone who would criticize them being the Sith or the dark side. I eventually had to leave one taste sooner than I planned on it uh, because I had become a liability. I cover that in, in my other cult episodes. And then I decided, okay, great. I mean, not, not great. I was, I was very emotionally wrought, but I was like, this is now the time I'm going to write this book. This was early 2015. But it didn't quite work. And it's not like I didn't put time into it. I spent many, I, I basically spent every day staring at my computer screen, trying to get things out, but nothing was right. 
and looking back, it, it was naive to think I could write about being brainwashed while still recovering from being brainwashed. But I tried and it caused me a lot of suffering and torture because I felt like the story had to come out, but it wouldn't come out. It, it felt like being severely constipated within me. Which brings us to our, our next quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which is, you're entitled to your labor, not the fruits of your labor. Actually, that year, while I was being tortured by this story, but and also being tortured by life because readjusting to the real world was certainly challenging. Another ex one taste friend, you know, we ended up hanging out. I shared some of this about her. And she actually told me this quote. She said, oh, yeah, just like in the Bhagavad Gita, you know. And of course, she was trying to nudge me to not be so concerned about the results of my writing process, be it actually getting published or even actually finishing the book, but to fall in love with the process of writing. And I actually got really mad at her when she shared this to me. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, I've given up so much of this for this story. I've given up so much of my life in service to this story. Of course, I need, of course I'm entitled to the fruits of my labor. If the muse is somehow a conscious person, I'm certain she was upset by me thinking and saying that. Because I, I certainly hit a wall for a very long time after that. I'd become a, an Uber driver uh, around that time. I drove a cab. Every morning I would drive and then I would spend most of the middle of the day when the streets were quiet trying to write, not accomplishing anything, making pages and pages of crap. And then I would write in the, or I would drive in the evening. And that was my life for a very long time. And it was, it was, yeah, it was just full of frustration and no progress. Funny enough, I came across this quote again. Just a couple months ago, I was chatting with uh, Mac Lethal, who's been on the podcast, talking about creative process and stuff. I was actually, <laughs> to be honest, I was telling him I was feeling kind of depressed. And he recommended to me the book uh, Turning Pro, which is Stephen Pressfield's sequel to The War of Art. I recommend both of them. They're short books on the creative process with the message of you just have to grind it out. And in Turning Pro, he has that quote again. Yeah, so I was reading it basically like almost, let's say seven years later and being like, Oh, I wish I actually took it to heart. I wish I actually wrote for the sake of writing and not for the result because, well, it certainly would have been better than what I had been doing the last many years. By this time, of course, it's just this earlier this year, I had basically started to live by this quote, not through wisdom or enlightenment, but simply through many years of struggling with this and realizing that being attached to the fruits of the labor, it's just not, it's just not good. Maybe it works for like a copywriter or a, an internet marketer writing, but for a, a creative story, it, it's just, it just doesn't work. Whatever entitlement I had as a younger man has basically been beaten out of me, you know? And I will say, looking back, the times that I've really made progress on the book and written parts of it that I feel really good about and are in the draft I have now came from when I was doing it because I loved the, to write the story even to myself. I loved reading it back to myself as opposed to hoping other people will like it or that it'll become popular or anything like that. One of the periods I did make progress was about a year later in 2016 spoke about this in another episode. I accidentally got someone pregnant. It emotionally jarred me. I went to Peru to hang out with some friends to 
to recover is actually when I met my wife, who would become my wife uh, five, six years later, Nalaya over there. Um, but there I, I did an ayahuasca retreat. It was the third time I did ayahuasca, and it was one of the most profound experiences as opposed to the other times. The thing that came to me, it, it was that I did feel like for the first time, I really was speaking to certain entities. One of them, and I don't know why she came in this form, but I saw the goddess Athena, the Greek goddess, very clearly. It was very clear I was speaking to this being. And she said to me, if you write for two hours a day, I will make you wildly successful. And if you don't, I won't. And it was like she laid out to me the, the practical application of the Bhagavad Gita quotes, which maybe in some ways contradicts, but it was like, just do the, just focus on the inputs. Don't worry about the outputs because you can't control that part. You can't control the lag metrics, these business terms, but we can't control the lead metrics. You can control how you spend your time. And while I haven't exactly followed this, I mean, especially back then, I didn't follow the writing two hours a day. Back then, two hours a day seemed so big. But now I look back because I regularly write four or five hours a day on my work days. For someone who wants to be a writer or considers themselves a writer, two hours really isn't that much. And perhaps a spiritual way to look at it, and this is something that Stephen Pressfield shares in his books, is that by sitting there and dedicating your time there as if in prayer or uh, you know, as if in we're really working towards something because it is a form of suffering or it is very uncomfortable at times, it is kind of proof to the muse that you're dedicated. And I will say that in the stretches where I did live by this and I made it the first thing that I did every day, writing something for two hours, that has yielded the best things for me. I mean, one of them has been the archetype challenge uh, that is like my main program. I didn't create that program because I thought it was a marketing opportunity or that I thought it would sell well. I actually thought it wouldn't because, you know, back then I didn't know anybody who was interested in Jungian psychology, but I, I became obsessed. I became seized again and I felt like I had to do it. And actually, I, uh, I, the month I wrote that program, I was supposed to go on vacation with, uh, with a lover at the time and we only had a couple weeks together. Uh, so it was originally my plan to just take off those weeks and spend time with her. But unfortunate for her, I had another lover that was taking precedent over her, which was the muse. It was like, I could not do, I, I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy any time with the, the human being I was spending time with until I did write by the muse. So that entire vacation, we were on a tropical island every morning. I spent, I mean, I spent the first half of the day, sometimes till 1 p.m., reading and writing, creating this program. And it actually, and, you know, and then I ended up spending the rest of time with her, but it ended up being such a, a moral victory for me because not only did it, it eventually become a very lucrative uh, thing for me, uh, it's also something I feel very creatively proud of because I didn't come up with it trying to calculate a certain end result. It was something that came to me and I had to put it out and then the results and the process was extremely fulfilling. Which brings us to our last quote and our last principle by the Greek poet Sappho, the lesbian poet from the island of Lesbos, but she also was a, a lesbian. <laughs> I mean, that's where the, the word comes from. Sappho, her quote is, there is no place for grief 
in a house that serves the muse. It's been 10 years since I started writing this book. It has been my most time-consuming activity of the last decade of my life, which I'm afraid to share because obviously that raises certain quality expectations. But I have come to terms with the fact, as Stephen Pressfield lays out, that the quality is not really up to you. It's this thing that's beyond you. You can say it's your own creative unconscious, or we can externalize it as the muse or whatever. What one can do, what a conscious, voluntary individual can do with your actions is the quantity, actually doing work and hoping something comes of it. Writing this story and getting it out has been its own journey that has worked me, very similar to the way that my one taste story worked me and challenged me and did force me to grow. I, I do feel that writing the story about that story has done something very similar. It ultimately is an inner battle. It's an inner battle of courage. And the thing is, though, which I've learned in maybe a long and difficult way, is that if looked at spiritually, if looked at as something in service to something beyond you, the muse, the goddess, Athena, whoever, whatever your symbols are, there is a level of fulfillment that comes from it intrinsically. This is something I've been holding on to now as I have just published the book or I've just published the first chapter. You know, will people like it or not? I don't know. Will it get shared a bunch? I don't know. I do intend on going through traditional publishing. Will that happen? It, there's many things that are outside of my control. And I've learned at this point to not become attached to these things. But I do believe deep in my heart or whatever, whatever the deepest layer of wisdom there is or knowing that this story will not let go of me and free me until I finish it, until I do service to it. Only then will the muse let me go on my life. Or maybe she'll give me another story that hopefully will have a much shorter cycle. And in the name of our last topic on the anabolic psyche, I have been finding that to put the time in to finish this and do right by it, not just crank out words. Because that's actually been a thing that's been frustrating from people, especially non-writers, who are just like, what, you're still writing your book? Like, just just write, just write, say what happened and then publish it, right? It's like, I can't really do that. I actually can't do that because that wouldn't be right. In fact, it'd be better to not do anything. And to actually take the time to at least hit my own standard of quality in the face of the fact that maybe Maybe it goes nowhere. Maybe all of the thousands of hours I've spent were just for me and a couple friends to, to read this book. It is possible. To do that anyway has required a level of courage, a level of boldness, a level of being willing to go over the top, not knowing if you're going to get hit by a bullet. I know I'm maybe over-dramatizing it, but this is how it feels. It's how it feels at times. And to make take that action boldly does feel like it adds to the strength of my psyche. It does feel like a, an inner victory to anabolically build my, my moral courage. Because in the end, you can either serve the muse courageously or you can hide in cowardice of it, in which case you'll always be her bitch, essentially. So I hope my tale and these ideas and these stories are useful. 
to anybody trying to connect with this part of the involuntary creative unconscious. We had Allen Ginsberg sharing with us, when the muse comes to your bedside, don't tell her you'll fuck her later. We have uh, the Bhagavad Gita, you're entitled to your labor, not the fruits of your labor. And we have the lesbian poet Sappho, there is no place for grief in a house that serves the muse. If you want to read my book, first chapters are free over at rwando.substack.com. If you subscribe yearly, I will buy you your physical copy of the book once it is published. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.